This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. So I literally have milk. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Box's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm uh, Matthew Glacius, joined as usual by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Sarah's congratulations. Thanks. I'm back. Nothing's changed in healthcare as far as I can tell. You missed nothing. Nothing <laughs> happened. It came and went. <laughs> like a flash. It was amazing. We're gonna we're gonna, you know, indulge Sarah, maybe talk about the healthcare thing. Still we're gonna, lives. We're going to talk about uh, and it's a dead cat bounce. Talk about some research into into death to cheer you up. Talk about climate change, but you know we also want to talk about ourselves. Yes, that's the most important part of this podcast. Is it? Is it not? Yes, it's the people, not the policies. Exactly, it's the people who make the weed. <laughs> and you can meet these so great special. people, and you can be a person. You can be a person in attendance at our very first Weeds live show. It is April eighteenth here in DC at the Warner Theater. You can get all the information you need at vox.com slash weeds live. What is that? It is vox.com. That's vox with a v slash weeds live. So and not Fox. Not Fox. Not this Fox. is not Fox. Fo- yes, you will. Okay. You will not find it there, but you will find it at vox.com/slash/weedslive. All right. April eighteenth, Warner Theater. We still have tickets available, and we would love to have you there. So come hang out with us. It's good it's happening so soon because it's unlikely that global warming will cook the planet before our live show. That's but smooth. See how I did that? Oh yeah, God, that's why they pay good. me the big, the big weeds bucks. But this week, Donald Trump came out with his long-awaited executive order on climate change, which mostly reverses a number of Obama-era policies. Um, We've got a great explain on the site from Brad Plumer about it. But And he had a very nice, I thought, encapsulation in his first paragraph where he said, in a sweeping new executive order, President Trump ordered his cabinet today to start demolishing a wide array of Obama-era policies on global warming, including emission rules for power plants, limits on methane leaks, a moratorium on federal coal leasing, and the use of the social cost of carbon to guide government actions. This follows Trump saying, and, and I guess actually executing, a reversal of Obama's tighter fuel rules for cars and SUVs. So right now, the Trump climate change strategy is to try to undo as much of what President Obama has done as possible. But there's a lot that he actually is not doing, or I guess more to the point, undoing in these rules. He is not explicitly or even really saying whether he will pull out of the Paris Climate Accords, which is actually a pretty big deal. Apparently within the administration, Rex Tillerson does not want that to happen. He thinks it would do some very significant damage to our our place on the world stage. Similarly, the order does not actually challenge, this is important, it doesn't challenge the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Now, that is authority the Supreme Court has found. It would be legally difficult to challenge it, but it's something many people thought the Trump administration might try to do. What they are doing, and I think this is the most consequential part of their new rules, is trying to in a way that at this point is vague, roll back the policy that Obama built on top of that authority from the EPA to regulate existing sources of climate emissions and power plants. So we don't yet know exactly how they're going to do it. There is a one strategy they could take where they just try to undo the whole thing. That would be pretty legally risky. Another strategy is they could just make it more modest. There are different regulations and definitions they could put into the power plant rules that, that Obama has going forward. 
Either way, this is going to be a long rulemaking process. It's going to have a lot of lawsuits from environmentalists as it winds its way through the courts. It isn't at all clear the Trump administration has a strategy for doing it quickly. Folks who followed this as Obama did it know it took a long time and it was very hard. It's not by any means fully implemented even now. So this stuff is actually pretty difficult and moves pretty slowly. But all in all, we got a pretty big signal set from the Trump administration on what they're going to do on climate change. And the answer is decide doesn't really exist and try to undo as much as they can that the U.S. government is doing to fight it. I thought one of the interesting things in the order is that it directs agencies to cancel climate change preparedness plans that they had made, which is just sort of like a, like a small thing. I mean, I know from sort of there's a research base around this. And like, I mean, one reason Obama like had different agencies develop climate change preparedness ideas is because it's good to be prepared for climate change. But also there are some good findings that just like investing people in this kind of less politicized sort of thing. Like we're not going to talk about whether we should tax carbon dioxide emissions. We're not going to talk about SUVs. We're not even going to talk about whether climate change is caused by human beings. We're just going to say it's warmer than it used to be. That trend appears to be continuing. Ice caps are melting. Sea levels are rising. We should think about what we are going to do about that is a good low-hanging fruit way of beginning to get people invested in, in the whole kind of issue. And so you know, telling the government that it that it's going to stop doing stuff like that is a good way of sort of salting the earth around climate policies and trying to make sure that people who work in insurance and real estate development or ranching and land management don't like accidentally find themselves becoming environmentalists because they start thinking about this problem to just like say to everyone, like, we're just going to pretend nothing is happening here. And therefore, it's easy to stick with the idea that we shouldn't do anything because, you know, because doing things is hard. People are eager to have reasons why they don't need to make changes that are inconvenient to them or their business. And so sort of creating this sort of like safe space to not contemplate it is, is important to the kind of medium term politics. Kind of building on what Matt was saying, it seems to take a odd view of like what is possible in the future. So like whether or not you work on these programs, it seems like we are going to have areas affected by climate change. One of the things I thought was really odd about the executive order is that you had kind of the signing ceremony with a bunch of coal miners standing around him. And you had Trump saying as he signs the executive order, he says, you know what this is? You know what this says, right? You're going back to work. This is like what he is telling these coal miners who are there for this signing ceremony. And that just does not seem to be the case. There are so many forces outside of the EPA, outside of these regulations that are not good if you are someone in the coal industry, that you have this switch of energy sources that regardless of what is happening with this regulation, it seems like, you know, this is not going to bring those kind of jobs back. There was um, a great quote that um, our colleague David Roberts found from Robert Murray, who um, is kind of a Coal executive, not super into clean power, he he told The Guardian that Trump should really temper his expectations a little bit. And I, I think this really speaks to like a broader point about the Trump policy agenda that we see again and again is that the policy proposals don't really seem to line up with the outcomes being aimed for. I am obviously most familiar with this on the healthcare side, but this feels really familiar on this level that there's like a photo opportunity with coal miners and there's discussion of bringing those jobs back. It does not seem like this 
will actually accomplish that particular policy goal. Yeah, they have they have no plan for that at all. Dave Roberts in that same post had a good line where he said, this is a plutocratic policy wrapped in a populist rhetoric, particularly on the coal stuff, where basically what they're doing is they're messing with a moratorium on coal land leasing because the Interior Department is repricing this land because taxpayers are getting terribly ripped off. And so there's a moratorium on, on leasing it out at these below market prices until they finish the repricing. And what the Trump administration is basically saying is, actually, you can keep getting it at below market prices while we're trying to figure out how much it should actually cost. So it's just a straight ripoff of taxpayers. But there's no real reason to think it'll put people back to work. I want to put this in a little bit of a broader context because two things about this are interesting to me. On the one hand, you know, as I've been reading and and talking to folks who know this issue well, they are alarmed at the message that Trump's executive order sends. They are not particularly taken aback by the content of it. This is not a sea change in, in policy. And the broader forces that are actually changing our energy usage, and we are seeing some very, very positive trends there, the cheapness of natural gas, technological improvements, a lot of the investments that were made now years ago are beginning to pay off around renewables. That is not going to get stopped here. And it's one reason the coal miners are not going back to work, because even if you loosen regulations, it is still not profitable to build coal mines. And also, if you're an energy company thinking about building coal mines, you know that as soon as Trump is out of office, someone else is going to come in. And if it's Cory Booker or it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or name your Democrat, they're going to go back after coal. So that that's one piece of it. So related to that, there's a, a research note from the Rhodium Group that tried to look at what would happen if Trump completely eviscerated all of the climate policies he's taking aim at. And they found that, that under that scenario, so full success for Trump on this plan, that in that world, you would see greenhouse gas emissions falling 14% below 2005 levels by 2025, which is slower than it would otherwise be. But you are still seeing a drift down in the amount of carbon the U.S. economy is is using. That said, to actually meet the Paris climate goals, and the Paris climate goals are not that aggressive. They are not holding climate change to the two degrees Celsius level that, that people think that you need to. The level of change needed to be so deep, so profound. I mean, it was far beyond what you had anyway among what Obama had already done. So Brad Plumer had a great piece on this based off of a research paper in science. And it found that in order to meet those goals, that global carbon emissions from energy and industry had to fall in half each decade between now and 2050. So we had to keep having how much carbon the whole global economy produced. Uh, number two, net emissions from land use. So agriculture, deforestation, all of that had to fall steadily to zero by 2050. We had to do this even though we need to feed more people. In a world where we are still producing meat to feed people because meat is a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions, very, very hard to see how that happens. And then finally, we really had to accelerate the development of technologies to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That had to scale up to the point where it's pulling out five gigatons of CO2 per year by 2050, which is a big number. So on the one hand, Trump is not dramatically with this executive order changing the path of climate emissions in the U.S. He's moderating a drop. He's making a drop not as sharp as it would have been otherwise. But it comes in context of a world where in order to avoid some of the worst dangers of global warming, we really need to see incredibly, incredibly big gains in the coming years. I mean, the the kind of action we need is drastic. You hear people like Bill McKibben compare it to a World War II style, like a war footing mobilization. And that's just getting, I mean, Trump is just 
not only stopping America's progress on that, but potentially, depending on what he does with Paris, going to stop the world's progress on that. And wasting that kind of time is really damaging right now. I think in some respects, though, the political dynamic that Trump is unleashing could be positive for the world. I mean, I think a, a problem we had is that the, the gap between like what would need to be done to to arrest this and what it was like convenient to do was so large, right, that it just wasn't going to happen. And like you really saw in 2009, the Democratic Party did not want to do big time carbon emissions reduction. Obama sort of did what he could in his second term through executive action, but it wasn't nearly enough to solve the problem. You then saw in the 2016 primary, which got quite heated and in a sort of tossed off rhetorically kind of way, Bernie Sanders would at times act like he was espousing the sorts of climate change policies that you might really need, Hillary Clinton sort of not even nominally, but neither of them, Bernie Sanders' heart and soul is like in his Medicare for all. I, I, I really, I'd push back on this. Kind of push. Sanders had a specific carbon tax proposal. He had written it out. It's been introduced in the Senate for years. He's been pretty aggressive on this issue for, for well before the campaign. I, don't, I just, I hear what you're saying. I don't think it's fair to, um, he was early on this. I mean, I don't want to... <sighs> I don't know. Sorry. I, uh, Bernie Sanders is such a hot button topic. <laughs> no, but I, 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 should, I shouldn't even talk about it. But it's like in politics, in like real world doing things, political organizing movements, you can only do a certain amount at one time. Right. It's clearly possible as like a member of Congress to sign on for incredibly ambitious plans on like 50 different issues. But like what you saw in 2009, right, is that the Democratic Party had a limited issue pipeline. And the thing they moved on was healthcare, right? And there were reasons for that. And they did it even though all of the key players knew it was not the more important issue. They chose to move on healthcare anyway. And to have the kind of change on climate that we need, it's not just that like a party that believes climate change is a serious issue needs to have political power, but that party needs to decide that it wants to bubble to the top of its agenda doing something drastic on this. And you could imagine a like slicker kind of Republican, more committed to appearing reasonable, who like slowly plucked away at the threads of what Obama was doing and slow walked everything while doing a lot of talk about, of course, it's serious, but we need to think about China and India kind of like demobilizing people. Whereas I think Trump, by like making his like fraudulent economic policy built around this idea of a coal mining boom is going to make people on the left more comfortable about saying, no, we actually need an alternate big kind of strategy here. And I don't know that it's going to happen. But I mean, I, I get very worried about this. That Not to say that, you know, people's ideas about, well, we should have free college or it, prescription drugs should be cheaper or something aren't important. But I see like remarkably little real interest in like actually we are going to try to reshape 
how the American economy and energy system works and like are really going to care about this. And I, I hope almost that Trump like wakes people up a little. But I mean, I think it speaks to like energy is a particular issue, right? Like it's so much easier to rally people around free college or health insurance. Like you can see the people without health insurance. You can see the people not going to college. Like the problem is so clearly in front of you. And I think like, I don't think it's a groundbreaking point, but that it's just a much harder part if you're a legislator, if you're an activist to like actually get people like psyched and rallied around this just seems like a really big uphill battle. So I'm, I'm also curious to see like if these types of actions like create that. Like I know a lot of times in politics we see once people aren't getting rallied around something until there is a threat to it. And all of a sudden that's kind of the catalyzing event to get people interested. Yeah, Gallup has polls showing this just like soaring level of like people expressing alarm about the state of the environment, which, you know, right. gives gives. But like, where does that go? So- I think is a good... If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. But it's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. So one, it is true that if you were designing an issue that would be hard for our political system to solve, you would design one where the costs are long-term, right? The pain is coming primarily in the future. It is going to hit other countries and particularly poor countries hardest. What you would have to do about it is both a tax, which is particularly unpopular in America, and a tax that is very geographically specific in who it really hurts and which industries it hurts. I mean, it is just a perfect storm of shit the American political system is bad at dealing with. But that said, you have had, particularly on college campuses, a pretty robust climate movement emerging in recent years. And what that movement is needed is very concrete things to fight over. So Keystone XL was a huge catalyzing agent in the climate movement Mm -hmm. because it was concrete. It was like a real fight that could be fought. And, you know, Obama was wavering on it. So he's actually persuadable. And ultimately, in the Obama years, they won that fight. And and I heard and, and probably even myself said, you know, that Keystone XL, it's not the be all and end all of climate policy. But, you know, something that organizers made the point to me, and, and it's correct, was that Sure, but if you're going to build a movement, you actually need things that you can win. You need you need real tangible things to organize around. An interesting question is the degree to which we're going to see organizing around these different moves from Trump. He's pushing forward on the Keystone XL pipeline. He, as I mentioned, overturned the fuel rules, which I actually want to highlight just for a minute because it's such a dumb policy. 
we had the auto industry. They were just going to do this. There was not a ton of complaining going on. They have always been able to do it in the past. It makes the cars better. You know, it forces a lot of innovation. Uh, it was just not a huge deal in American politics, and it was leading to a more fuel efficient uh, green auto fleet. And Trump just did away with it for honestly, really no reason. Um, and then, then you have the CEO, which has not certainly induced the kinds of protests that, say, the travel ban did, right? You've not seen spontaneous protests erupting in, in every state capital or, you know, at every coal plant in the country. So I, I do think there's a question of how much in the Trump era where the president is less persuadable, there is a feeling, you know, that, that there is a similar kind of mobilization, what we saw around Keystone or bigger, given, Matt, as you said, both the growing polling suggesting people are really quite concerned about climate change and also the polarizing nature of Trump as a figure. It's also interesting on, on that from the international angle. I think if you were trying to come up with an optimistic scenario here, it's that instead of having China and everybody pull out of the Paris Accords because America is abdicating its leadership role, that actually a lot of our competitors see an opportunity by being the players who keep the climate accords going to take over a leadership role from America. So that's not a great thing for us and our geopolitical standing, but it might be a good thing for keeping the rest of the world committed here that other countries might hate Trump so much that it becomes useful politically to push and do what he's not doing. And particularly for a country like China, which I think is adroitly taking advantage of accurate perceptions that America is giving up, at least for the moment, its global leadership space to push in there and, and try to take more of a, a frontline role. Something you never saw from Obama in a like a clear way because the politics are hard is someone to say that like, look, coal is really bad. That like it's true that Trump's orders here are not going to bring coal back and I've seen a certain amount of I don't know, kind of like liberal smugness about this. And it's also always just worth pointing out when the president's saying things that aren't true. Uh, but what you can do by deregulating is slow coal's decline. But what we need to do as a society is like drastically accelerate it like as quickly as possible. There should be no coal being mined or burned. It's incredibly toxic. It puts out mercury that poisons children's brains. It kills through particulate emissions and asthma many, many more people than all nuclear accidents combined have ever done is really terrible. And it's been challenging for geographical and electoral math reasons for Democrats in the past to like see a way clear to saying that in the way that at a certain point, tobacco politics as a farming and job source was for a long time a sort of a paralyzing factor in the cigarette issue. And at a certain point, the shape of things got turned around the right way that, you know, the Bill Clinton administration found itself being comfortable to say, like, nope, like, we just have to say that, like, smoking is bad. It is sad. There are a lot of good people who work on tobacco farms and they're not, like, trying to kill thousands of people, but they are, in fact, doing that. And, like, we need to put a stop to this. And... Something you saw in the 2016 election map, right, is that Hillary lost, but she could have won. And she could have won without any coal country 
type stuff, right? She carried Virginia, even though Virginia has those coal counties. She lost Ohio really badly, but was still close, right? And was like at a margin where winning back coal country type things was not what was critical. And I think that opens the door to try to speak in a more visionary way than anybody did about like, you know, what are we really going to do with solar and wind and renewables? Are we going to do something? Brad, uh, I think it was Brad, had a, a great piece about nuclear power. And, you know, could you imagine a serious sort of effort around South Korea style uh, rollout of nuclear plants, which, you know, discomfits a lot of people, but actually addresses a lot of the, the issues that exist here. And obviously, it's like, it's a tough nut to crack. But the first step toward that is actually taking it seriously as a nut that you do want to crack. I mean, like, as uh, I guess Donald Trump is finding, like, nothing in politics is exactly easy, you know, and like to do big, important things, you yourself have to take it seriously in a way that I feel like Democrats have been a little half-hearted about traditionally, that it just hasn't quite seemed there. And I do think that both like in the map, in the generational politics, in the level of polling that you're seeing that the space is being created for people to say, you know, we're going to really foreground this as a topic. I'll just offer before we move on here, just one stat I find amazing on this. There are now twice as many jobs in the U.S. in solar power than in coal. Right. And that just has to, on some margin, eventually matter in the politics of this. It just isn't the case that we have a coal mining-based economy. There are more yoga teachers in the U.S. now than there are coal miners. It's not to say that the loss of a coal mining job isn't tragic, right? It's not to say that, that those people's interests should not count. But it is to say that this is a place where I think particularly Trump, who is a very sort of 1970s view of how the American economy works, but just politics in general – I think is a little bit behind where the economy actually is in terms of there are industries that we cause disruption to all the time that are just much, much, much larger at this point in terms of employment than the coal mining industry. You're putting the yoga teachers out of work. <laughs> Should we talk about healthcare? Yeah. Shouldn't we? Can we? Speaking please? of things that aren't that easy. So I went on vacation last week. And HC Thanks, Sarah. And I, I left everyone with way more work to do. And HCA was, was still alive and fighting, and I came back, and HCA is no more. So I literally have milk. I mean, not milk, because my <laughs> wife is vegan, so I have soy milk in my fridge that it is around longer than this healthcare. Oh, bill. yeah. I mean, 18 days. Like, it did not survive an entire month. It was, it was two and a half weeks that this, or, yeah, about... Two and a half weeks at this bill from the moment it was introduced to the moment Paul Ryan said we're giving up on it. We don't have the votes. There is now more chatter of a maybe vote next week. But um, <laughs> but I think it's finally no plan. Paul Ryan's spokesperson is on Twitter saying like, no, this is not happening. Its final iteration didn't even last long enough to get a, a weeds episode. We talked no. about it Wednesday morning. <laughs> then they cooked up this idea to take out the essential health benefits then the whole thing died. And now we're here. Then we had like a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now, now, and now there's a discussion about another vote that like, okay, so here, here's what I think is the deal. Like I, I am going to side with where Ezra was on this a few months ago, I believe, after the election. I think I have been convinced to your point of view that they're just not together enough to do this. And I think one of the things we've seen, I think the fundamental thing that is unsolved um, – 
beyond strategy and speed and all those things, is that you you clearly have two camps of Republicans right now. Chris Jacobs, he used to work in the Senate. He has a really nice piece on this on The Federalist. And he basically outlines there are two camps of Republicans right now. One are the repealers. They just want to get rid of Obamacare. They don't really care about replacing it. They think Obamacare is a bad law that overregulated the insurance market, and they would like to see it gone. This is generally the Freedom Caucus. And then you also have the replacers who feel like now that we've expanded insurance, we have an obligation to keep most of those people covered. And there is just not you – know, this is a divide in health policy that goes back so much further than before HCA. And it's just not one that has a lot of common space to it. Like it's really hard to see how those two groups eventually come together. Just as we were heading over here to tape the weeds, there was some reporting in Bloomberg that um, some of the moderate conservatives are talking to the Freedom Caucus. But I mean like how you resolve these issues, I don't see it. I think they might be – pushed to by some crisis points in Obamacare this year that we can discuss. But I don't think the strategy was great by any means. But I don't think the problem is a strategic one. If they had better strategy, they could nail this. I think there's this fundamental divide in the Republican Party that is going to make it very, very difficult to accomplish anything. I have so much to say. I don't even know where to begin. I I have so many thoughts after this last week. So one, I just want to just say this. This was a terrible piece of legislation. It was a bad bill. It remains amazing to me that Paul Ryan managed to produce that piece of healthcare legislation that was opposed by the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation and Cato. Like, I, I just don't understand what happened here. Had no major interest groups in the healthcare world behind it, had tanning salons, I know. I mean, he got <laughs> some of the business groups behind it. He got the mainly, Chamber of Commerce. Not a major health group, but mainly because, uh, from, from what you know, people speculated to me some at tax least. Cuts. Yeah, tax cuts. Like and also, it's good to have some chits in with him for tax reform, which is coming. Sure. But they, like, it was just, you have to really run a bad bill. If you're the Republican Speaker of the House, and probably if you're the Republican Speaker of the House with such a deep relationship to some of these institutions, particularly to, to Heritage and AI, as Ryan has, to have them and all their healthcare experts just come out against it. So one bad bill did a lot of harm to people. I mean, this failed because it was just indefensible policy. And that's why nobody ever was able to effectively defend it. But I have been thinking a lot about where it leaves Republicans. And I've come to sort of have a, a view maybe that I didn't hold before, which is Republicans are caught in a really unusual trap, which is that free market, sort of quote unquote free market health insurance is actually very expensive. It is more expensive to have Aetna or Cigna or whoever cover somebody with apples to apples insurance than it is to have Medicaid cover them, to have Medicare cover them, to have the British healthcare system, the Singaporean, Canadian, French, whatever healthcare system cover them. And, you know, we've talked about this on the on the show a bit before, but this is because the way other countries do it and the way Medicaid and Medicare do it is they regulate prices centrally. Okay. So the way Republicans have tried to deal with this problem, that they want a free market system with unregulated prices, but they do not want to spend a ton of money is to try to offer people a system where they just don't get much health insurance, where all they get is catastrophic care and maybe a health savings account they have to fund on their own. And I think if you saw one thing in this debate, it's that that is not going to work. People do not want that. And they don't want it so much. The Republicans never, ever, under any circumstances, for any reason, at any time, try to sell them on the vision. They just never come out and say, our vision is that you have 
health insurance, it covers less and has way higher deductibles and way more cost sharing. There are reasons you might want that. It'd be We should at some point maybe even have a, an episode of the weeds on this argument that maybe we just way overinvest in Medicare and uh, medical care and health insurance just broadly. And it's like a societal mistake. We do it in the employer market and everywhere. You, you can really make an argument here. But nobody wants to hear it. It's not an argument that is popular, and so Republicans don't make it. In fact, what they say, is, as Matt has pointed out many times, is that we're going to give you more generous health care with lower deductibles, and the government is going to spend less money. It's, everything's going to be great. Puppies, ice cream, taste great, less filling. It's all going to be fantastic. Republicans are now faced with this really difficult choice, which is if they ever decide to be serious enough to, to deal with it, which is if they accept that the only healthcare system ultimately the people are going to be happy with and that's going to be stable is one where they're actually getting reasonable health insurance. It covers them when they're sick and is affordable to them to, to purchase. They're going to have to spend a lot of money to get that healthcare system in place. It will cost more than Obamacare. If you want to get the people off of Medicaid, it will cost more than Obamacare. So Republicans could have a free market healthcare system that costs a lot of money. And there'd be reasons you might want to do it. An argument you get when you sort of push conservative healthcare people on this is like, yes, we spend more than other people do on drugs and so forth. But it's important because we get all this innovation and the rest of the world is free riding on our innovation. And so, you know, sucks, but we just have to keep spending a lot in order to keep making sure that we have these big advances in drug development and medical devices and all these different things. And there is broad arguments about freedom. I mean, there's a lot you can make arguments, right? Is worth just spending more money on a better designed, but fundamentally free market-ish healthcare system. But Republicans have not done that. And until they deal with that central problem, they're going to get nowhere. We had ran a very nice piece of data by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, and they made the argument that what really destroyed this bill was that Republicans used it first and foremost as a vehicle to cut taxes on rich people. That if they had just decided to take the money that was in Obamacare and instead of cutting taxes on rich people for no obvious reason, they used that money to restructure the healthcare system and restructure Obamacare into a model that they felt was more consumer directed and that you know they felt was more innovative and so on, they could have maybe gotten something done here. But as long as what they are really going to try to do here is massively cut spending on health insurance in order to cut taxes for rich people, there's just nowhere for them to go because the only way to make all that work is to persuade people that a system that gives them super high deductible care and in many cases no coverage at all is a better system and that is just not an argument they are going to win and it is so not an argument they are going to win that they never actually even try to make it yes boom i agree with no but I, those are my I, views I, think, <laughs> I really think that the more moderate republicans in congress need to take this opportunity to think about what it is they want to see happen, right? Because one possible outcome of all this is that the Trump administration, through a mixture of sort of indifference and malice, kind of wrecks the exchanges part of Obamacare. And because there was a big debate, people like to have a word. So the word we came up with was Obamacare. But then because the law has like a bajillion different things going on with it, the most distinctive thing in the law is the exchanges. So it becomes useful to use Obamacare both as like a word for a part and as a word for the whole. But those are different 
things, right? And if at the end of the day, if we come back and there's a new Democratic administration in four or eight years and Medicaid has been expanded a lot and we've regulated private markets a lot and we've done all these delivery system reforms, but the exchanges in red states have withered and died and maybe it's still up and running, you know, in New Jersey or something, liberals know exactly where they want to take that. Right? They want to take it the same place they wanted to take it when Bill Clinton was president, when Harry Truman was president, when FDR was president. Like There is a relentless drive to say what we should do is sign everybody up for health insurance that is delivered by the government. And that vision, you know, conservatives beat it in 1936. They beat it again in 1949 or whenever it was. Like They, they beat it a million times, but it keeps gaining ground. Yeah, right. they keep partially right. They, yeah, they keep it doesn't conquer, right. but, but they, they lost a lot of ground in nineteen sixty four. But they're they're knocking it back. Yeah. If you look at the long, long, long term trajectory, right? Like employer sponsored insurance is slowly withering away, and every, just barely, right? But everything conservatives like, you know, it's like it's going to be Uber. Like we're not even going to make companies say they have employees. <laughs> we should cap the. Insurance deduction, right? Like everything conservatives want to do on all policy areas encourages the further withering of the employer market. And they say they want to repeal the Obamacare employer mandate. So if one side could for like decades, generations is always saying what we should do is sign more people up for government insurance and the other side is just kind of running around being like, I don't even care about health care. Like in the end, everyone's going to get signed up for government health insurance, which is fine by me, although I also think it would be sad for it to take like 40 more years. I'm like an old man saying, <laughs> you know, when I was eight, Bill Clinton had this idea <laughs> because it's stupid, you know? And so there was this other idea, right? Like, Max Baucus and whomever else, New America Foundation, they were like, let's have this solution where we'll have the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation had it at some point, and it was like, here's a thing, right? It's an okay idea, I guess. But if Republicans, if like even the most moderate Republicans don't want to make it work, it's just like, well, what are we doing? Because they seem to object to the Freedom Caucus's desire for nobody to have health insurance. I think they I mean, definitely right. don't want a single payer. So, like, what are you trying to do? It's like it's really on like the Susan Collins and Dean Heller and Charlie Dent and whoever else to like be like, okay, guys, like, what are you trying to say you want to do here? Because there are lots of business friendly Democrats and stuff who are like looking nervously over their shoulder at Bernie Sanders and everybody else and are like, uh, we better do something here, guys. And like, this is. You either moderate Republicans have some kind of moderate idea or else they're just going to like twiddle their thumbs and we're going to have this like sad situation where 10 percent of people are uninsured for a long time and you're going to get a policy outcome that they don't want. And like it's really it's like it's really stupid and they, they should try to say like what is our desired end state here and – Having articulated what that is, then their negotiations, whether it's with the Freedom Caucus or it's with Joe Manchin or it's with Donald Trump or anyone, can proceed from like a goal. But right now, they just seem confused. And I I understand some of Paul Ryan's the, – the frustration Republican leadership has with some of these people because it's like they all said like, well, let's repeal Obamacare. And Obamacare extended coverage to all these people. So then they came up with a repeal bill. And it's like, well, all these people are going to lose insurance. And then suddenly you have members from 
unsafe districts are like, oh, that doesn't sound so good. But like, what did they think was going to happen if we repealed Obamacare? Like, I, it's it's like fantastical to me. And like, they're the ones who should have a replacement plan, right? Or they should say, hey, you know what, guys? Like, actually, we think this bill is fine. And like, we just came up with some nonsense reason to oppose it. But people thought in March 2009, like, probably we'll get some Republicans to vote for some version of this plan because it's aligns with what some Republicans say they want to do. So yeah, there's an amazing quote that um, my, our colleague Jeff Stein got from a Republican senator from Louisiana, um, whose name really is John Kennedy, who said, I, I think the main area of consensus right now is that Obamacare sucks, which like <laughs> it really got at almost the heart of the problem for me at this point, that like if that is the main area of consensus, it explains a lot about why figuring out what comes next is not easy. You know, I would say in terms of like, well, what what do the moderates want here? I'd say that Cassidy Collins plan is probably like the best articulation of that at this point. But even that's something. And so this is you can if you Google Cassidy Collins Vox, you could find an explainer on this. The idea is to let some states opt out of Obamacare if they want other states to continue Obamacare, presumably some states could try and pull off single payer, but probably be unsuccessful as they have been but under it's Obamacare. So, so I don't think Cassidy I, Collins is like I that. I think crazy that plan, plan actually may, is like an. I think it is really telling that there has been so little interest in it. You don't see Cassidy Collins being invited to the White House by Donald Trump to no. just like talk about this plan that Donald Trump now says maybe he needs some Democratic support. That might be able to get some. Like yeah. they, I used mean, to, I think, they used yes. to talk with Ron Wyden, right? Yes. They felt like they had to win him over. There was like this sort of Democratic want contingent interested in this stuff. So, Dem- I mean, Democrats just have no – like what is their reason at this point to support a bill like that that would end Obamacare in all the red states? I think the dynamics of this – my thoughts in the next few months are that we're going to have like a bit of a lull. People will like talk about replacing Obamacare. They won't come up with a new plan, but they'll keep saying that they're working on – some kind of plan, and we'll have these kind of like flurries of news about possible votes on something. I think where the rubber really hits the road is like this spring, insurance companies are going to have to decide if they want to sell on the Obamacare marketplaces, particularly like the date I am putting on my calendar is June 21st. That is the day that insurers have to decide, are we doing Obamacare next year? And I think you're going to see a lot of insurance companies pull out. Like we have 16 counties in Tennessee right now that have no one signed up to sell. I think you'll see more of those places. And the Obama administrations would really go to the mats to get someone to show up to sign coverage. They would go twist arms and make it happen. I don't know that the Trump administration is going to take that approach. There's actually an interesting bill that um, Senator Alexander from Tennessee, that state that has some um, some counties without insurance companies selling, he wants to take a different approach. He wants to say, you know what, if no insurers are not going to sell, we're not going to try and make them sell in the marketplace. You can just take your subsidy somewhere else off marketplace and buy insurance elsewhere with it, which is kind of it's sort of an Obamacare fix, but also undermining Obamacare by moving the subsidies elsewhere. Just so I understand that, what that yes. would mean is that you are selling in a space where the insurance regulations don't apply. Yeah, or we're you're buying, of, I'm sorry, in a space. So by some weird loophole, there's actually some um, Tennessee plans that still are allowed to underwrite for pre-existing conditions. I just learned about this today, but the Tennessee Farm Bureau offers health insurance. And for some reason, they are not within the Obamacare regulations um, universe. So someone could take their subsidy and buy with a plan that eliminates people with pre-existing conditions. So 
it's it, it seems on the face like an Obamacare fix, but I don't know that Democrats will see it as such. But that really seems like the next time we're going to have big movement and discussion on this is like late spring, early summer, as you're starting to see some marketplaces will be fine, like California, New York, like D.C., those are going to be totally fine. It's actually these ones that um, are in more rural states, often with Trump voters, that are really might struggle a lot in the next few What months. do you think about the sabotage possibilities here? I mean, and I don't, yeah. I don't just mean they don't try super hard to get an insurer mm-hmm. to sell in these 16 Tennessee counties, but right. that they actually, through forward guidance, through the way they're talking to insurers, both publicly and privately, through the way Tom Price is interpreting and enforcing regulations, they're actually trying to let the thing unravel because Donald Trump's stated belief is that what should happen next is Obamacare explodes, implodes, depending on who you talk to, and then Democrats come crawling on their knees to make a deal with Trump. So I think... What we know is there is a lot of leeway to do this. I wrote an edition of VoxCare, Vox's new healthcare newsletter, which you should all subscribe to. I wrote an edition of it yesterday, basically saying there's a lot they can do. So if they want to sabotage, sabotage is on the table. The kind of biggest sabotage opportunity is there's a lawsuit right now about um, cost-sharing reduction subsidies. This is about $7 billion in funding for low-income Amer- Americans. It makes their deductibles um, smaller. It makes their co-pays smaller. And there's a lawsuit that ages and ages ago, I want to say, like, it was still when John Boehner was speaker. The House Republicans filed a lawsuit saying that these were not appropriated correctly. It was a more technical lawsuit that would have the upshot of kind of exploding the Obamacare marketplaces. So the biggest thing Trump could do right now to sabotage is not defend those cost-sharing reduction subsidies. The Obama administration in court was saying these are legal. We can continue these. The Trump administration could say, you know what, I'm just dropping this lawsuit. Nick Bagley has an amazing explainer on this on Vox that I highly recommend reading. So the opportunities are there. I don't feel like I have a clear sense of how the Trump administration wants to play that. I know, like you said, Trump has said his expectation is they would explode. He can make that expectation reality if he would like to. Like that is well within the Trump administration's policy options. I just don't have a good handle right now on like if he wants to push that button, it's really hard. I, to I just tell. want to emphasize, in case anyone, maybe Jared Kushner, listens to the weeds or something, for how stupid this idea is. Like, can you imagine if, when like the first reports of the Islamic State had come out, and Ash Carter or whomever came to the White House was like, "Oh, we we got to do something about this ISIS," and Obama had been like, "Nope." It was George W. <laughs> Bush's idea to invade Iraq? I said all along it was a bad idea. We just let these people come over, slaughter some Americans, and we'll be like, see, assholes? I told you so. Like, that would be crazy. It would be immoral, but it would also – it would just be dumb. Like, Donald Trump is the fucking president. (laughs) He can't deliberately engineer bad outcomes in people's lives, particularly bad outcomes in the lives of rural counties in red states. And then say this shows he was right all along and now Democrats are going to come crawling to the table to be like, why? Which Democrats? Like your your Kamala Harris is going to be like, man, you really fucked those people in Tennessee. <laughs> Let me now make some compromise with you on taxes. Like it doesn't make any sense. Now, it is true that if you just your only priority in life is to win Joe Manchin's Senate seat. That like trying to fuck over Trump country voters and then obscure who is doing it and somehow blame Joe Manchin, like maybe that will work. I don't know. It sounds weird. But like 
it's crazy, right? It's like nothing happens like this. You can go through history books and there is no example where they're like, and then the president did this thing, which he knew would make people's lives worse, not because he thought it was worth the cost, because he saw partisan political advantage in making people suffer willfully, his own voters. Like it's ridiculous. And you worry with Trump that he believes some of these things that he's saying because you, sometimes you hear it and you're like, oh, he told Republican conference like the best thing for us to do politically would be to let it explode. But we're too – and you're like, OK, he's bullshitting. Fair enough, right? It's politics. But then you start looking at it and you're like, I don't know, man. This guy doesn't know anything about politics. Like maybe he thinks that's true. Maybe he thinks that if people in rural Arizona can't get health care, that that somehow helps him win votes. I don't know why he would think that. But, but I, it's out there as an idea and it's it's ridiculous. I think it's actually – it is worth saying – so I agree with everything you just said. But the specific – way in which it is ridiculous is one that I'm not sure they have thought hard about, which is that the mechanism that they would be using there is not a mechanism that wins you votes. So in 2010, if you polled people, they actually did not blame Barack Obama for the state of the economy. People thought it was George W. Bush's fault that the economy was extremely bad. But then if you look at what happened in the 2010 midterm elections, right. Democrats got stomped. They got completely destroyed. And again, if you polled people, they still didn't think it was Barack Obama's fault that the economy was bad. But they were extremely unhappy with how things were going. And when they're extremely unhappy with how things are going, they blame the president. And the particular reason this is a bad idea in, in this case is you imagine that rural voter also, in Tennessee. he said it. Well, that – I mean, yes. <laughs> but this is actually a continuous problem for him though, right? It's like an issue on the travel ban where he kept saying it's a Muslim ban. Now they have to be in court being like, oh, of course it's not a Muslim. <laughs> why, would you, why would you possibly right. think? But you imagine you're a rural voter in Tennessee who Donald Trump got elected and how they don't have health insurance. It may be that when you call them on the phone and you say – hey, what do you think about Obamacare? They say, I think Obamacare is garbage. And even if you say, whose fault do you think it is? You say, I think it's Barack Obama's fault. It's his name's on it. It's his care. But this is not going to motivate them as a voter to go vote for Trump and the Republicans. They're not happy. They're upset. And when your people are upset, they don't come out and vote for you. Like this has happened again and again and again and again. They don't get madder and madder at the other side. They just get demobilized. And particularly when you are in power, right? If the other side's in power, they think, oh, we got to get you in power. But if you're already in power and failing and you then make their life worse, they don't decide we need to give you even more power. They get apathetic about politics and other people come out to vote and you lose all your seats. And you think of a timing on this. So this will like all be leading up to the midterm elections. Like you're going to have a lot of if you have people losing health insurance, you're going to have like a lot of very angry constituents going into the 2018 election. They'll have had about a year without health insurance. The new insurance rates will be coming out as they always have lately around um, the midterm elections. Like the timing, I guess I don't think there's ever any time where it's politically advantageous to take away lots of people's health insurance. But you see this kind of lining up in a way that is pretty damaging. So I don't know. I mean, I can see it both ways. Like, it sounds like like everything Matt says, it, it sounds like a really ridiculous strategy. At the same time, it's really hard for me to see the Trump administration, which has campaigned on for years on repealing Obamacare, to like actually do the work that is necessary to make it function well. So maybe like they like do the things that, you know, they keep those cost sharing reductions. They say like they're not going to light 
that bomb. But there's just a lot of work that goes into making the marketplaces run well. So I think another version of this where you could see um, you know, the marketplace is not doing well is where it doesn't come out of a place of malice, but like a lack of knowledge, like a lack of just understanding or a lack of desire to really make these run super well. So there's no like bomb thrown into here. It's not like they say, well, we're going to stop enforcing the individual mandate or stop defending this lawsuit. But it's just like these policy decisions that are that are wonky and behind the scenes, but make it difficult for the marketplaces. Because, you know, I think one important piece of context to keep in mind here is that the marketplaces, like we're not doing stellar going into the Trump administration. They were doing very well in like well-populated states run by Democrats generally. So like Maryland, California, Washington state. But there was a real struggle. Only um, I think it was one third of counties last year had just one health insurance company selling. The number of health insurers selling on the marketplaces has declined year after year. When I've talked to former Health and Human Services Secretary um, Sylvia Burwell, she said her big regret on Obamacare is that she thought insurers would take to the system much faster than they have. And right now the game isn't like, well, who's going to sign up? What new people will come in the market? It's like, how many people will leave and how bad will it be? So, you know, it's an uphill battle to keep these running well. You have to work at it. The I think the status quo would be for it to get worse. So even if it's not through malice, I think there is still space for things to go wrong for Sounds the Sounds like a job for a master dealmaker. Speaking of things that may or may not be going wrong for people, what's our white paper of the week, Matt? Well... This paper is a follow-up to an earlier exciting paper by Angus Case and uh, sorry no, no. <laughs> by Anne Case and Angus Deaton, an exciting husband and wife economics couple who uh, they're doing research on death in the United States, and they are finding, in essence, that white working class people have become more likely to die over the past fifteen years or so, and that this is concentrated among middle-aged people and that there is sort of two different spans of things going on. One is that there had been a lot of progress in heart disease, cancer, diabetes type stuff up until about 1999, at which point it, it flatlines, and that there's been a growth more recently in deaths attributable to alcoholism, opiate overdoses, and suicide which they characterize collectively as deaths of despair, which is a nice turn of phrase, but I think in some ways a little misleading. I agree with that. Um, I mean, it's it's a fun thing to say. They then document a lot of attention has been paid to the sort of race ethnicity finding here because it aligns well with what people are interested in contemporary American politics. But I actually think the the most interesting thing they do... You want to quickly say what that race ethnicity finding is for those who have not read the Well, paper? so, I mean, basically they show that the death rate for non-college educated white people is now higher than the death rate for African Americans or for Latinos. And that is their... Figure 1.1, you know, it's their lead yeah. chart in the thing. I do not love this chart because it is compromised by compositional effects in both directions. Chart 1.2, their, their second chart I think is better. And it shows that for black and white working class people, death rates are rising. It's just that they've fallen a lot for college graduates and also educational attainment for African-Americans has risen a lot. But at any rate, after that, they show some international comparisons. And 
there it's just striking. Like in all countries, mortality rates are going down somewhat. They're higher and lower in different countries. They are going up and down at different paces in different countries. But there have been some rough economic times around the world. But it's not like in developed countries you had, I don't know, famines or something like that. And technology continues to march forward. And so the death rate is falling in France. It's falling in Germany. It's falling in Canada. It's falling in Australia. Cars are getting safer. Healthcare technology is getting better. It's what you would expect. And then you have the United States as this like huge outlier. It had been falling. And then in the 21st century, it started going up. And it hasn't gone up a ton. Is that for everyone or that's for high school educated? The increase Americans. is concentrated in people who haven't gone to college, mm-hmm. but it is so big oh, okay. that it drags it. the overall. So this is the entire population. It's... Number up. Okay. Yeah. So it's it is just a subpopulation, but it's a very big subpopulation. It's gotten a, a lot worse. And you know, the sort of big trends, right? Like Globalization obviously exists in Australia also, and they are not having like huge increases in the death rates for people. So I have like a lot of quibbles with this paper and some of its media coverage, but that basic finding is, you know, wild. Yeah, I agree with that. So there have definitely been, I think, some interesting critiques made of this paper, particularly Andrew Gelman, um, and I'm forgetting the name of his co-author. Joel something. Sorry, Joel. We're halfway there. <laughs> um, over at Slate, we did a good piece. And, and their basic argument, and you've seen this in some other places too, is that one issue here is that non-college whites just describe a different group of people today than it did in 1999. You know, when I look at the education data, I don't think the group of people described is so different. Educational attainment in America has not been undergoing a revolution in that period. But there are differences, and I think it. I think it does make it – Hard to know exactly what you're seeing. But like Matt, I was really struck by the international comparison. And something that I thought was interesting in the international comparison, one thing that happened when the original paper came out was that people said, oh, look, this explains Trumpism. It's hard to see what's going on with Donald Trump in the economic data because the people who are supporting him are not obviously disadvantaged or not obviously in the worst economic shape. So the economic anxiety thesis is a little bit hard to credit. But then, you know, folks, some folks looked at this and said, oh, yeah, but the most core measure that you can possibly imagine of how you're doing is life expectancy. And if that is changing for this group, it's no wonder they're they're furious. One thing I actually that was quite interesting was that we've had very similar Trump-like right-wing populace arising in Europe. We saw Brexit in the UK. We're seeing, you know, Le Pen is very strong in France. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. But they are not having the same thing happen. We are not seeing this kind of underlying health disaster unfold in those countries. So it means that, one, I'm a little skeptical of this as an explanation for right-wing populism. But the other thing is that there is really something that America is doing wrong. It is not an inevitability. It is not something that has to happen when you have a period of wage stagnation or a financial crisis, that something is happening in this country around a set of mortality causes that are, again, like Matt, I don't love deaths of despair because I don't think I don't think it's necessarily the case. I don't think it's a a really good way to talk about things like addiction. A lot of people who are non-despairing get addicted to something like opioids and, you know, and and the the consequences can be truly awful. But nevertheless, we are seeing a lot of deaths from broadly preventable mechanisms. And it is something that is specifically happening in America. 
And it is creating an inequality that is specific in America. A very interesting thing they note in their paper is that in other countries, we are seeing the death rate gap between the sort of high school educated and college educated groups converging. You're seeing less health inequality. And here, of course, you're seeing more and more and more. So we are doing something very, very wrong. And we are seeing a, a problem emerge in, in this country that is both as bad as you could possibly imagine a problem being, right, in terms of its consequences, but is unique to something happening here. So I am becoming more convinced the unique thing really is tied up in opioids. And this is something they talk about a little bit in the paper. But there was this other report I read recently. It was from um, the United Nations looking at an international comparison of opiate use. And there's this stunning chart on it. It's kind of in a way similar to the chart Matt was just talking about where you see the United States going in a very different direction. This is one of daily doses of opiates per million inhabitants. And the U.S. is just like a crazy, crazy outlier. You know, some of the stats in that report are that Americans are prescribed about six times as many opiates per capita as citizens of Portugal and France. And even more than if you compare it to like Italy or Finland, we're just like not in the ballpark of other Developed countries, the United States consumes 99% of the world's supply of hydrocodone. Um, it's just really a huge outlier. Given everything we know about opiate addiction, it seems plausible to think about that as playing a pretty significant role. In, in And so this is an area where the U.S. really has been different than other countries. Other countries did not start prescribing opiates with with as much zeal, do not currently have nearly as much opiate prescribing. And so, you know, when I think about ways that the U.S. is standing out, like that certainly strikes me as one way we are also different right now. Yeah, and, and that's why the, the deaths of despair framing, I think, is unfortunate, right? It implies that what's U.S. specific is despair. Um, if you look at the state of the Portuguese economy over the past 10 years, it's it's been horrible. But it lets sort of, I mean, prescription drug companies and the American medical establishment and the government that went along with this, this opiate trend off the hook, essentially. I mean, you had in the US, if you go way, way, way back, right? Like you had people selling morphine to people and selling heroin to people. And it was a big problem because people, heroin is very addictive and people died. So the government made laws that you can't just sell heroin to people. And then we developed some synthetic opiates, but you would only use them in very rare circumstances because it's super addictive and it's super dangerous. And there was this push in the 90s by Purdue Pharmaceuticals who invented OxyContin to try to say, oh, no, we have come up with a new thing where it is a new form of opiate that it is safe to prescribe people not for an acute pain associated with a surgery but for chronic pain. And it's safe and it's non-addictive because it's controlled release. And that just wasn't true, right? If we had known in the late 90s that no, actually, if you start giving everybody opiates for chronic pain, they will become addicted. Like nobody was saying at the time that would be a reasonable trade-off. The chronic pain problem is so bad that we should, should suffer, suffer through it. They said it wasn't true. They said that these controlled release tablets would not be addictive. They paid out millions of dollars in a lawsuit to settle some false claims that they made. It turns out this does not effectively treat 
chronic pain. We have changed our practices somewhat over the past few years, which is one reason that people have been pushed into heroin, which is terrible. But still, it strikes me. I mean, I had a friend who had surgery recently, and I was struck by the quantity of pills that he was given after it. And what he did, as I think a, a number of people I know who've, who've had surgeries in recent years did, is they took some pills for a couple of days, but as soon as their pain became bearable, they stopped taking the pills, even though there were still pills in the bottle. But I don't think it would be unreasonable for a person to trust their authority figure prescribing doctor and to just keep taking the pills as long as you had some discomfort. And you you can't like you can't treat these medicines that well, way. Well, I mean, one of the addictive. more nefarious things that happens there is then people sell the extra ones because right. they don't actually need them. But you know, I think there are two things going on there. Like you said, there's the marketing of um, pain medications, and there also is, and I think this tethers to something else that's unique about the United States is there is a lot of untreated chronic pain in the United States. We are. On, you know, a lot of the countries I'm sure we're being compared to there, probably the only or one of the few countries that does not have a national health care system. There is less access to health care in the United States than other places. And, you know, one of the it's definitely true. A lot of this was about marketing of opioids, and that's why they took off. But another factor you had going on in the 90s was there was really a push in established medicine. Like, you need to do more to cure people's pain, particularly in cancer, end of life, that just not enough was being done. So, you know, if you look at like why else is the United States standing out here, it's, you know, it's the opiate problem, but it's also the fact that we have a very different healthcare system from most of the countries we are often getting compared to. I, I do want to note here that the case indeed and look at the opioid question and they say it's definitely making things worse, but it cannot account for the majority of the trend we're seeing. It's not enough to say that we just have this opioid problem, which is not to say, and I think everything we've, you guys have said here is correct. I just want to, I don't think we quite boil this down to, to the opioid question. I mean, suicides have gone way up too, for instance, in a, in, in a way that I think should be very concerning and that they've gone up sharply. What Case and Deaton do in this is they end up making this argument for what they call cumulative despair. And they begin to correlate a bunch of different things to to these kinds of, again, what they're calling deaths of despair. And, you know, they think that it is a mixture of its pain, its unmarriageability, its wage shocks. They show something pretty interesting about how the returns on experience are basically disappearing if you don't have a college degree. So if you're a worker who is getting older and you do not have a college degree, Obviously, this is an aggregate. It's not for, for every individual person. But it used to be that you got paid more over time because your experience was was worth more to, to employers. Now, at a certain point, you really – like that curve basically turns around and you're very likely to just leave the labor force altogether. And so their theory – I mean, opioids are part of this. A lot of different things are part of it. But that we are seeing genuine shocks to the sort of cultural supports people have and the sort of cultural context in which they are existing – and that in, in a lot of these communities or in some of these communities, although they show this is less community specific than certainly I had thought it would have been before. It's really – it started in certain areas, but now we're seeing it all over the country. But but they really argue that what you're seeing is a lot of different things piling up and the reduced and, and diminished living future prospects of people end up having their expression in everything ranging from suicide 
to destroying your liver with alcohol to opioid addiction to to whatever. So this would be better without the opioid crisis. I mean, that's a clear thing we could do. And we had some really good pieces this week looking at to, to the points you guys are making that a very effective possible solution, not solution, but a very effective policy within the opioid crisis would simply be making sure that all prescriptions for opioid painkillers are only for three days. You can come back and get more in three days, but only for three days at a time or only for five days at a time. But it, there is definitely something going on here. I'm not sure how persuasive I found the cumulative disadvantage thesis, but I'm not sure we can we can reject it out of hand either. One other thing I thought was interesting, I'm going to correct us from earlier. So it is Jonathan Auerbach and Andrew Gelman, who wrote the Slate piece. It, it is not Joel. I'm very sorry, Jonathan. One Joel did nothing. Joel did nothing. I don't even know who Joel is. One of the things they highlight in their research is that they cut the numbers a slightly different way. And they find that the really increased in um, mortality is that it's particularly among white women between 45 and 54, that they they make the argument that that is what is driving a lot of the trends that are being seen, that it's less among men. I do not have a great theory about what is different about that group, but I thought it was just an interesting other cut at this data Um, and kind of also cuts against this idea of as much of like job loss in in kind Mm -hmm. of industry, like um, factory jobs. And those aren't actually the jobs that um, women are typically predominant in. So it's kind of another layer of mystery in this that cuts against this idea that um, this is like despair about loss of factory jobs. So it's more in the South than in also, the Midwest. Yeah. So so all these things make it, it – it's important but also a really difficult narrative to understand right now. I mean I, I do think – I don't know. You know, it, It'll take time. But I, I do think that it would make more sense to look at this public health issue as a public health issue that is like one slice misprescribing of opiates, one slice of widespread availability of guns – is a, a strong predictor of suicides. You know, one slice. I mean, they're long-standing, well-known American lifestyle habits that are unhealthy compared to what's seen in somewhat poorer European countries. We have known for a long time that Hispanics have longer life expectancy in the United States than than white people, despite much lower incomes and and less access to the the healthcare system. And that you know, promoting population health is not something we have actually done a lot of in the United States, except in the specific domain of encouraging people to stop smoking. We've had a lot of success at getting people to stop smoking, and it has done a lot to improve population health. But there just like has not been a lot of emphasis on other aspects of it. And in the specific realm of pain management, something um, incredibly counterproductive was, was done. And Case and Deaton are economists, so it's natural for them to look at economics and people are into economics these days. But it's just it's really hard for me to look at this data and like see a clear economic explanation. And they wind up needing to come up with these slightly wacky, it seems to me, stories about disadvantage because it's like White people are not disadvantaged relative to Hispanic people. Uh, the tra- and women have not become more disadvantaged compared to men. 
right? Like none of that lines up. And it's true you can come up with some kind of way to connect the dots between it. But it, it strikes me that it, it just – it would be better to look at the specific channels and behaviors and what can be done. I mean we could tax alcohol more. We could have fewer guns lying around people's houses. I mean of course like there should be better economic policy. Having more jobs and higher wages is its own reward it, it seems to me in, in many ways. But even before you saw this curve on the line, it was striking how much less healthy Americans are than, say, Italians, even though Americans are a lot richer than Italians. And that would probably be a problem worth addressing, like, on its own terms. The United States is already the richest country on earth. And so only focusing on economic issues, I think, is not going to, like, solve every social problem we have. But what could solve all your social problems is coming to a live taping of The Weeds at the Warner Theater in D.C. You can check that out at Fox.com slash Weeds Live. Thank you to my colleagues, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, our producer, A.C. Valdez. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. Hold up. 